it starts with the knowledge that that person in front of me, first of all, is a different person than I am. It's someone who has their own values, their own ways of thinking, that we are all pulled by emotions, but in a different way. People aren't born with emotional intelligence. You can practice your emotional agility. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show, a part of the VEDEX Leaders Community Online. In each episode, we explore ideas and subjects you can use to manage your veterinary practice better and be a better leader. I am your resident asker of questions, Brendan Howard, and today, Dr. Olivia Oginska is the woman with the emotional advice. This veterinarian was on her path to specializing in surgery when some bad experiences opened her eyes to a whole world of non-clinical aptitude she had neglected. That led to a university degree in applied positive psychology and a focus maybe not on emotional intelligence, which sounds like EQ, you're born with it, but emotional agility, doing the hard work to understand yourself and others better. Touchy-feely stuff, Liv. So are people skeptical? I feel like emotional intelligence and positive psychology, work-life balance, emotional well-being, a lot of these things have become more popular in the past few years. Do you still get people who kind of like, kind of question like, that's not as important. This other stuff is way more important. Do you still get negative comments about working on stuff like that? (laughs) Never directly. (laughs) Never in (laughs) my face. (laughs) But I can imagine that there's a lot of skepticism and sometimes cynicism around this. And I totally understand that because it was the same at the beginning. It took years before I really could see the power of emotional intelligence in the veterinary practices. But I came from Eastern Europe where that topic didn't exist. And those so-called soft skills that are really human skills, they were very much neglected. And I was trained that way. So I totally get it, but I don't have comments in my face. (laughs) They are there. Would you tell me as specifically or as kind of generally sort of ambiguous anonymously, what was your experience either heading into vet school, in vet school or after vet school that kind of led to your wanting to learn a ton about this, get a degree in it, and then spend time trying to teach other veterinarians about it? What were your experiences that led you down that path? Mm, You're looking for drama, my friend. (laughs) Of course. It's a great story. (laughs) Well, you want drama, I'm going to give you a drama. (laughs) The reasons for me to focus on that topic, they were very personal initially, as you can imagine. And I suppose that question is coming from that perspective, because if you are focusing on something so emotion oriented, if you're focusing on the topic that is related to our humanity, that obviously has to come from our personal experience. And it was like that for me. When I was in vet school, then when I graduated, I created that, first of all, very strong, strong ambition around my clinical work. The ambition that became a bit of ill ambition, I would dare to say, I become a bit tunnel visioned, if you can say so. And I was really focusing on that one particular part of career. I really wanted to be a surgeon. And because of that focus, because of that tunnel vision, I neglected a lot of elements that were very, very important for me as a human being who would like to thrive in a workplace. I really devoted my whole time and focus on developing my clinical skills. 
And even though I was growing in that direction, I knew that something was not clicking, something was not right. I definitely wasn't my best self. I didn't have many friends at the time. I couldn't just feel like it was the right place for me to be there. And because I always had anxiety since my earliest years, that social anxiety, that it deepened, it became more severe with time when I started working and really, really pursuing that surgical career. And at some point, I also experienced incivility. I was severely bullied. I was part of the conflict that was poorly managed, that my leaders didn't know how to manage. I found myself in that conflict completely and unexpectedly. I had no idea what, what, what is even happening. What am I doing here? So all those elements, they kind of told me that even though clinically I might be growing, I might be learning more and more and becoming better, but then there is so much more to our clinical life than just those skills and knowledge that we gain. So with time, I really wanted to find out what is that thing that is missing? Why am I not feeling this is the right place for me? What am I neglecting? Maybe there's something more that I could learn so I could finally feel that this is the right place for me. And I started studying psychology. That was always my passion. I was always at the back of my mind. Uh, and I was deepening that topic to, first of all, help myself. And I discovered that the issues that I had, the problems that I had, a lot of other people had. And that made me feel like I was more understood. Maybe I belonged more. So the more I talked about everything other than the clinical knowledge, the closer I got to the people around me, when I listened to their stories, when I could help them through the conversation, the more myself I felt, uh, that better self. So because of that direction that was more true yeah. to me, I decided, okay, this is the career that I need to pursue. I need to change the direction, even though it was a very, very hard decision. When you talk about incivility and bullying, a lot of times when people describe that, it feels like a very outside in. So people are outside and they lack emotional intelligence and this whole culture lacks emotional intelligence. Did you find your first steps were sort of coming to understand how emotionally unintelligent others were? Or did it start with kind of your own self-awareness about kind of who you were. So in other words, was it kind of other focused when you started or was it self-focused? What was the part that seemed like grew first? I think it was both because you need two people to create the relationship. Everyone contributes to that relationship. So you can have a person incredibly emotionally intelligent, but they won't be able to build a bond with the other person if they are not utilizing their emotional intelligence. Uh, we can't say that someone doesn't have it. We all have it, but we spend various amounts of time focusing on developing those skills. So they can be for some people just underdeveloped rather than non-existent. So I think it was always kind of two people involved either in that conflict or in those situations of incivility. I would never ever make a victim of myself. I know that I was definitely somehow unconsciously contributing to that situation. Maybe my behavior was annoying to someone. I do not really know what the person who was my bully, what was behind that wall, what I did, which behavior triggered that response, but I'm sure there was my involvement. So in any relationship, in any team dynamics, there is no true, true victims because 
it's fluent, is just flowing between two people there. So it wouldn't work if I was just blaming myself and thinking, oh, I suck and there's something wrong with me and I need to help myself. Yeah. Or if I was just blaming others, I think it would be immature. It would be ridiculous to blame others. So I think both. It kind of hit me from two fronts. Can I ask, and it doesn't need to be specific to your particular situation, but maybe when you talk to other people about incivility and bullying, where people feel like some people are being hostile and mean and unfair, and other people feel like they're sort of, if they're not victims, they're sort of the targets of that. I think mm. it's, there's a tendency to get mad at the person who's, it's natural to get mad at the bully and say, what's wrong with the bully? Mm -hmm. Could you explain a little bit more if you go into a situation talking to an individual about a situation they feel is bullying, or you go into a workplace where people say there's a lot of negativity and there's a lot of meanness that happens. How do you make it a two-way thing between the people who are kind of quiet and aren't mean and then the people who are loud and mean not to see that one group is worse than the other. What kind of things, what kind of tools or what kind of thinking or mindsets do you bring to the table when you encounter that? So when we think about incivility, it's very important to understand that incivility is conflict. So it basically means that there are two people who are not on the same page, that they perceive the world differently, that they have different values. It's in the end, it all boils down to the values. So one person perceives the workflow or the priorities or the behaviors differently. They have different expectations. And the other person um, has a completely different point of view and all those elements. So they just cannot find the common ground. And because they very often do not know how to talk, and that situation of a conflict can trigger the behaviors that are very unpleasant. So it's kind of a defense very often when someone will start barking, <laughs> if we can compare that to a, a scared animal that will start, you know, growling because they try to protect themselves or they really care about something. They would like to get something from the other person, but they feel like they're hitting the wall. So it is definitely conflict. Every single time we have incivility case or bullying, depending on the degree of that incivility there. And I try to find out what is missing. What is that bit of information that they really don't have, those two parties? What is it that they cannot understand about one another? Where is that problem? What is it exactly? And then when I figure out through a conversation with one person and then the other that, especially when mediating the conflict, I find out that, for example, person A would like to feel respected. And the other person, person B, also would like to be respected but they perceive showing that respect differently. So even though they have the same need, they cannot get on the same page because there's so many emotions around that. So I try to figure out what is the problem really. I make open their eyes to the fact that it is a two-way thing, that relationship. So we all react and respond to the other person, person's behavior, that we trigger one another, but also in the end, I try to find those things that they have in common and it bonds them nearly when they realize actually this human being just like me just wants to be respected, but we somehow completely missed that point. And we just need to learn how to find a language that will suit both of us. Today's show is brought to you by Vetex International. 
Now, are people the major pain point in your practice? If so, you're not alone. Over 90% of managers report staff problems to be their number one issue. At the root of this problem are usually three dysfunctions. A poorly articulated vision, toxic culture, or some form of leadership breakdown. If this sounds familiar, then do not despair. Help is at hand. I encourage you to check out Leaders, a veterinary-specific leadership training program where you will learn how to create and execute on a shared vision, how to hire well, and build a powerful, high-performance practice culture without all the drama. The class is accredited, delivered online, and open for applications now. To learn more, listen to a free training webinar, or apply, visit vetexinternational.com forward slash leaders. Okay, welcome back to the show. I hope you enjoyed part one. Let's get into some more meaty content to help you grow your practice in part two. I'm curious about that. So that's fascinating that you can sort of boil it down where you two are not so far apart as you think because you're both seeking respect, but there's some difference about how could you give, it doesn't have to be a specific hypothetical, an example of two different people who both want respect and yet they're running into this conflict where one person winds up getting angry or frustrated with the other person constantly, even though they both want respect. How does the respect on both sides, how might it differ? Like a possible situation you've seen or something you could mm-hmm. imagine. How would those two people want respect but not be able to talk about it in shared language? <laughs> so I can give you my personal experience. That was the perfect. The, that's the conflict. And I, I, I can talk about that because it was me a part of that conflict. So there was a situation with I was the vet and the, the other person was a nurse. And at some point I realized that there were some rumors, let's say gossip behind my back, coming from that person. And it was unpleasant. And I have absolutely no idea where it came from. And it turned out <laughs> at the very end, that I did something, I think I gave some explanation that she found patronizing. So I asked her to hold the leg a little bit differently, replacing IV, was something around that. Because that person, she was from a different part of the country, she had a very, very strong accent, and was at the very beginning of my career here in the UK, mm-hmm. I couldn't always understand what she was saying. So there was the language barrier. So even though she was helping me and I asked her to change something, maybe I was really focused and I said something in maybe abrupt way. I don't know at this point, but the way I said that she found it offensive, but she didn't tell me that. And then I also, when we spoke and I couldn't really understand how I felt that the barrier, the language barrier there so we could never have a um, very open and just relaxed conversation. It was really difficult. So I disrespected her inadvertently. I had no idea. And then those rumors and those bad words, bad mouthing started. And that offended me. So I felt disrespected by that situation. But the problem started with one situation where literally instead of discussing that At that very point, I didn't like the way you instructed me. I'm sorry, I don't feel like it was respectful. Instead of managing that there, it just grew to something completely unnecessary, really. But yeah, we just wanted to be respected and 
we didn't show that to one another because there was a lot of emotions that accumulated and emotions, they definitely don't allow us think clearly. <laughs> Our prefrontal cortex is turn off <laughs> when the emotions are raging. I think a lot of veterinary teams oftentimes have kind of a, a horizontal group. So they have a horizontal team where there's not a lot of hierarchy. Everyone sort of pulls together on a case and everyone's work is valued and people don't feel like there's, obviously the doctors always have authority, but they don't feel like there's a clear hierarchy. Doctors tell the nurses what to do. Nurses tell the assistants what to do and on and on like that. In situations where people feel disrespected, do you think if you had been like a vet tech lead or a vet tech that this uh, veterinary nurse would do you think she would have spoken up then? In other words, do you think there's a hierarchy where maybe people, quote unquote, below the doctor are sometimes if they feel disrespected, they won't say anything because that's the doctor? Or do you not do you encounter that a lot or hardly at all? Yeah, for sure. Maybe not in that case, necessarily, because I was an intern. And I wasn't really perceived to be kind of above the nurses. So that was a different situation uh, because some places are run by vet techs or or nurses and then interns, they are not, you know, at the top of that hierarchy, (laughs) (laughs) being scary and intimidating. So I really don't think it was that situation, but I'm surely 100% there are situations like that when the person who was offended will not speak up because they will be intimidated by the other person. And this is where we're talking about the lack of psychological safety, because if someone feels safe, no matter what the role is, they feel strong enough to say, could we wait a second? Could we discuss that? Because I don't feel comfortable about the words that you use or the tone. And could we just make sure that we understand each other here? Um, so hundred hundred percent. I believe that it also very much depends on the people who are involved, because when I was in conflict, yeah, this is where the emotional intelligence, the level to which we were using it, I think was very very visible at the time, and I can see that now after years that I didn't resolve it properly. I could have used my emotional intelligence much more but it was underdeveloped for me at the time and for that person as well. Because to start spreading gossip and bad-mouthing, it shows you that this person has a very strong need to share that bitterness with someone to kind of find justice or just kind of release those emotions, whereas there are much better ways of releasing those emotions. So incivility very often comes from that abuse of information and energy that someone has within them, and they try to release it in kind of unhealthy way. So for both of us, yeah, we didn't have much EQ at the time that we really, really needed. Can I ask, that's that's interesting. It sounds like there's a little bit of self-knowledge and other knowledge. So simply facts about how people operate, things, information Mm -hmm. you could gain as if you could just listen to somebody tell you what's true about emotional intelligence and then things would be fixed. But there's this other side of the practice, like the only way to oftentimes to really make this emotional intelligence work in your life is not just knowing it, but practicing it over and over again. When you think back to that situation, are there particular principles of emotional intelligence that you've learned or an important one you've learned about how people communicate that would have made it better? And is there some practice that you wish I wish I'd started practicing this task. So was there knowledge that comes with emotional intelligence or is it sort of practical things you have to practice? How do those play out? 
It starts with knowledge. Okay. Because you need to know that there are some rules, some laws of human nature that really come into play, especially when we work in the high pace, really intense environment. There's a lot of stressors around us. It's very difficult to find a day that will be completely peaceful or calm, even though we don't say the C word ever. <laughs> to do, not to do that. <laughs> so it starts with the knowledge that that person in front of me, first of all, is a different person than I am. It's someone who has their own values, their own ways of thinking, that we are all pulled by emotions, but in a different way. That this person could have some triggers from the past, some traumas, some scars or even open wounds that we could accidentally touch. So it starts with the knowledge that our minds, even though we think we fully control them, we actually don't. There's a lot of unconscious biases. There's a lot of situations that trigger in us very primal reactions. And when we understand that fact, then we start looking at another person with hopefully less judgment and more curiosity. What is that wild animal in your head doing right now? <laughs> <laughs> so that first having the knowledge makes us more attuned to actually paying attention and listening to a person to search for the cues to search for more answers instead of dictating those answers ourselves. And this is where the practicalities kick in. And the very simple thing that we can do is first of observe ourselves. How do I react in the stressful situation? Do I clam up? Do I close? Do I retract? Or do I bark or growl? Uh, do I shout? Do I leave a room? Am I avoiding this situation altogether? Because very often we have no idea. So if we start with self-observation, then we can then educate others. Listen, <laughs> it's like a little manual of a person. <laughs> <laughs> so for example, I'm talking to my team. Let's say Sarah is working with me today. And I know that I had a terrible night. I didn't sleep well. I might say, Sarah, I'm already tired today. If I say something a bit abruptly, please believe me, I really don't want to hurt you. It might be because I'm tired and I get headaches very quickly when I feel like that. So if I do that, can we have a safety word? If you say, I don't know, lobster, <laughs> <laughs> something red, alarm, I will know, okay, I probably crossed that line and I'll try to focus more on gaining better self-control. And it's so vulnerable to open up to another person like that, but also so self-aware. But the clarity is the key to, to civility, to peace, to bond within the team. If we don't know what's happening within us, others will definitely not know. And that creates space for the assumptions, for trouble, basically. I like that idea of the safe word. It feels like the equivalent of like when people are trying to do a habit, they put that rubber band around their wrist and like the lobster's like the snap. If the if the, <laughs> your colleague looks right at you and says lobster, it's like getting snapped on the wrist. Uh-oh, what I just do? Where am I? It sort of wakes you up. Because we get down into our stress and we get we, we get that tunnel vision about worrying about people worrying about the case or having a bad client interaction or feeling that everything's so busy right now, everyone is freaking out and everyone just sort of freaks out together. Do those little things about like stop for a second, have you seen that the change that those do bring? Do they really work is what I'm asking. That's mm -hmm. agreeing to those things and then trying them. 
Yes, absolutely. I have so much proof from my coaches when they say that when I stopped for a second, I took that deep breath and I observed that my heart is pounding, my hands are shaking, and I'm just about to explode. And it was the moment of decision, you know, between that our reaction and what is actually happening around us, there is that little space that we can use. And I heard a lot of beautiful stories of people actually feeling much more in control of themselves. But like you said, it is a habit. It's something that we need to work on. And it starts with that awareness. Okay, I need it. I need to work on that element of myself. And we will fail many, many, many times initially. But then continue, continue trying, engage other people, ask them to help you. So the lobster word, some ways in which that other person will help you be good to them, basically. This is teamwork. We are not lonely islands, um, you know, in the veterinary practice that, that don't impact one another. I always compare the teamwork in the practices kind of like a coral reef. It's an ecosystem, very much dependent on one another. So if we are clear about our personal manuals, other people help us because they also want to have peace at work. They also want to finish on time. They don't want to fight. People usually hate conflicts and they hate resolving <laughs> conflicts. Right. Um, so as long as we can get on the same page and understand how we work and tell one another, it becomes easier, but it takes practice, 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 and a lot of self-compassion on the way. But like the fierce one saying that, okay, I screwed up again, but I'm not going to give up. <laughs> I want to play devil's advocate because it was interesting you kind of mentioned, hey, we probably all have like this user manual that either we're not looking at or we're not looking at each other's user manuals to figure out how we can get along better. I know there's a sense sometimes that people either use EQ or emotional intelligence and they think either they have the idea that it's sort of instrumental knowledge. I'm going to use emotional intelligence to control or manipulate the environment around me to get people to do what I want them to do. I know what I need people to do, so I'm going to learn about them so I can get them to do what I want them to do. <laughs> do you ever have people who either are interested in that? I want to learn more about people because I want them to do what I need them to do or who push back and say, well, I just think this is all about manipulation. Do you get anybody who complains about emotional intelligence in either of those ways? <laughs> Not really in the vet world, because the vet okay. world is still very unaware of emotional intelligence, but it does have a dark side. It could serve manipulation. The question is, do you want to be that type of person? And I will leave that choice to you. <laughs> you, you give them the knowledge, and if they want to misuse it, they can. <laughs> okay. Yes. I never had someone asking me to, could you just give me some manipulation tools? <laughs> Never. Oh, that's good. I'm happy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Do you know, it terrifies me that it came to your mind, really. <laughs> I'm a dark, cynical person, and I just went to the, oh, what could people use this for? Because I love emotional intelligence, and I see it used in exactly the way you're talking about, where mm -hmm. when you feel sort of made vulnerable, and it's scary for other people to know something about you, that you can't control something, or you struggle to control something, or you have some reaction... And to voice that, it can feel like a failure. Mm -hmm. I could see people just wanting to push away from that vulnerability. Mm -hmm. I see. Uh, well, the key is actually that 
When you think about that, if there is a person with such behavior, they want to manipulate others for their own benefit. This is not serving the team. <laughs> this is not the type of person that we want to have in our team, in our workplace. This is not someone who we want to be contributed to our workplace culture because they're going to skew it. They're going to destroy it maybe even. And sometimes it takes one person. And I'm quite strict when we talk about the teamwork and who should be within the team. I strongly believe that there are so many teams out there that the person who feels like they need to reach for manipulation in this one team, they are in the wrong team. Or maybe they shouldn't be in the vet world in general at all. But I really believe that there must be some discomfort to feel that I just cannot be successful through who I am. And when that cannot be embraced, if you need to manipulate others, you're definitely missing something. And if this team is not giving you that, maybe it's worth searching for that fulfillment somewhere else. Want to learn more about Liv and her work? Visit BeHumanSavvy.com. That wraps up today's episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show. Did you love it? Leave a review. Tell your friends in VetMed about us. And if you want more, you are in luck. Dr. Oginska explains how leaders can make an emotionally healthier workplace in the extended version exclusively for our leaders community. Learn more at vedexinternational.com. And until next time, I just want you to know, I appreciate you.